they cursed us. Podcaster. Podcaster, they called us. They cursed us and drove us away. And we wept, precious. We wept to be so alone. We forgot the taste of bread, the sound of trees, the softness of the wind. We even forgot our own name. My brother, my captain, my podcast. My precious. That fucking rock. That was awesome. <laughs> I can't believe I just committed to <laughs> yeah, that's um, a lot of doing that for the next uh, 12 episodes or so. <laughs> Anyways, I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. <laughs> and I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeted. JRXN, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. A lot has changed. The world has changed since we last recorded about the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Today's episode is Journey to the Crossroads, our inaugural episode on The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King from 2003. But first, our spoiler warning. While The Ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even The Hobbit films. So, as we are wont to do on our inaugural episodes, we like to recant the tale of when we first saw the movie in question. This time, it's Return of the King. So, as you may know, I grew up in the Hoffman Estate South Barrington area, so I was at the AMC South Barrington in December 2003. But really, my journey to Return of the King starts earlier. It starts Thanksgiving break of uh, 2003. Uh, one of my friends, Arico, she was a student, an undergrad at Northwestern University, which is in the city of Chicago. We're close enough for most of our listeners. And we went and partied there one night. And then late at night, we were driving back to our suburbs back in the Northwest. And we were making our plans to go see Return of the King all together when we all came back for Christmas break from school. Some of my friends, because they are normal people, did not remember much of the Two Towers. Um, this is a time before like <laughs> streaming services and stuff. So they, you know, just were like, yeah, I probably need to watch it again. Or Manu, could you tell us what happened? Um, I, at this point, had basically memorized the entire movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and in that uh, car ride home, um, I was pretty drunk. Um, the driver was not, just to be clear. Um, and I basically, with the three or four people in the car, recited all of the Lord of the Rings, the two towers nice. um, from beginning of the to end. Um, and my friends felt uh, caught up. <laughs> uh, so that was very fun. I did golem voices and everything, uh, things I can't do anymore because my voice has dropped like six octaves and uh, many, many, many smokables later. Um, anyways, uh, so I went in December to see the movie with my friends, the same friends I saw The Two Towers with, and who also heard me drunkenly recite all the lines from The Two Towers just a month ago. Um, a lot of us passed out during our first time watching The Two Towers. Like, we just got way too crazy beforehand. <laughs> um, but so we were all a little more cautious, and we all made it through Return of the King. But at this point, we were not doing those like Thursday night, 7 p.m. showings for new movies. Um, these new releases started airing at like 11.55 a.m. or midnight. 
Um, so we were at that AMC South Barrington until about 3.30 a.m. in the morning, um, which was followed by going to IHOP afterwards. Um, so now that I put you in the time and place, what did I feel about the movie? Um, on the whole, you know, I basically loved it. You know, I was just satisfied with the ending. Um, I did feel in the moment that there was a little bit of a drop off from how I felt coming out of the two towers. Um, it was almost like watching Return of the Jedi is now to me. And I mean that less as a diss on Return of the King and more that Return of the Jedi should be praised more than it is these days. <laughs> oh, okay. Amazing. Right. Okay. <laughs> so I was going to ask, cause like I, it was only recently, like really recently, I mean like seriously in the last year that I started to like think about Jedi as like maybe the lesser of the original trilogy films. Like from, like I think Jedi might actually be after the original after the 77 one it may be the one that i've seen the most like even more than empire um because i just loved it i just thought it was all fantastic i loved like the start the totally nonsensical start and it had not occurred to me that like that was a lesser quality movie until about a year ago um and then suddenly it kind of clicked like oh shit this does actually like suck noticeably more than the other two um, and maybe that's just like the hit age 25 brain matured but like <laughs> was like like did you could you as like a kid or a teenager appreciate that like did you appreciate that like jedi was worse than the other two or was it a thing for you where they were all just three like excellent movies um they were always always three excellent movies to me i would say and i think it's a very common thing for a lot of people in their younger days to say return of the jedi is their favorites um i think it you know Scott it has a lot of the conclusion brain. stuff <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, and it does have a lot of cool stuff. Um, you know, the speeder bike chase through Endor is like impeccable filmmaking. And like dramatically, Star Wars doesn't get much Vader that, or much Vader, <laughs> much better than uh, the uh, throne room scene between Emperor uh, Luke and Vader. I think that's just like all immaculate. Um, so like I loved it. It just as I got more into film and really this time, like when I'm in college and like end of high school is like when I'm really getting into film is like when I was at least countering or encountering the opinions that Return of the Jedi was a big drop off um, because, you know, up and through like junior high, it was just like, yeah, these are the three Star Wars movies and they rule. Um, and, you know, the prequels at this point, there were two of them out, um, didn't dissuade me of the notion that there were three Star Wars movies and those ruled. <laughs> um, so it, it, it was like, I don't think I think the Return of the Jedi comparison is something I make now as a 30 or 40 year old. Um, I think coming out of it, I was kind of in a liminal space between the kid brain who was just satisfied with endings and awesome bigness of it, um, but not quite to the point where I realized that it was maybe on a little rockier ground in, in terms of some of the writing or some of the things they just kind of fast forward past. Um, and it so it kind of like lives in between how I thought about Jedi as a kid versus how I think about Jedi as adult. Um, that's kind of where Return of the King was for me coming out of it at age 19 i think i was at that point yeah age 19 right okay yeah that that makes sense because because like i feel like now we have a lot of like trilogies to look at and i think by and large the third movie of most trilogies tends to be the shittiest one i can think of like maybe a few examples where that's not true 
Um, but for the most part, we just kind of anticipate that if a movie series is going to be a trilogy, the last one's going to be the weak one. Um, but when, you know, when it's the year 2003 and you don't quite have as many, I, I mean, Oh, Sith is two years away at this point. It's it's interesting to hear that, like you know that that kind of cultural expectation of this is probably going to suck ass. Like, wasn't quite in play yet. No, no, not really. And I I think a lot of that is at this point. It was popularly known that the Lord of the Rings films were kind of made as one thing, um, which I think helped um, because at this point we're like two for two on pretty incredible films. Um, and I would say they are three for three overall. Um, so it's like, I didn't have as much fear, uh, of it. Um, I was definitely a little more worried going into say revenge of the Sith or <laughs> even, you know, a decade later, things like the dark Knight rises is a great example of, um, you know, regardless how you feel about Nolan, I know most people <laughs> think the dark Knight rises. <laughs> let's start the discourse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, um, Oh, I, I wish this was an Aowen episode. Then we could talk about Barbie. I'm sure I could make you go insane uh, <laughs> yes. that way. Um, but uh, trying to get back on topic, I did know that I did not like I was not coming off the high that I was with the two towers. Um, I think part of that is the two towers specifically starts with a bang, has a bunch of Legolas shit that I've already spent like three hours of this podcast talking about. Um, and then I love that end stuff. And it just kind of feels like a rush at the ending. Like there's no real come down like Return of the King has because it has an extended denouement. Uh, Return of the King kind of ends on its climax a little bit, um, you know, with Gandalf charging, with the Rohirrim, with the flooding of Isengard, um, even Sam saving Frodo, all that stuff. You know, it, you kind of end there even though there's a little bit of postscript. Um, so you're just like coming and the adrenaline's pumping out of the two towers. Um, and Return of the King, very intentionally so, is like, hey, we need to wind some stuff down. Um, and obviously, um, there were those audible reactions when there were more and more endings um, at the AMC <laughs> in South Barrington because it was past 3 a.m. in the morning on a Friday. So I assume some people did have to work that day. Uh, and you could just hear like, oh, when like it faded to black and then another scene like <laughs> faded in. Um, like people were just like, oh my God. And I think part of that is kind of fun and novel. Um, I thought about it then and I still think that way now. But it is something that's like people were like, all right, come on. <laughs> Let's get on with this a little bit. That's incredible. Good for the people who audibly sighed that you are speaking for us all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was it was also like very emotional like throughout. I think... Um, everything, you know, starting with the end of Mount Doom, um, with like Sam and Frodo and the lava background, like that just like was like where the waterworks really started. Um, and then I think like I can feel like that chill, like when the Aragorn says you bow to no one, um, like everyone around me was just kind of like vibrating at that. Like it just hit perfectly and no one was completely exhausted from the movie yet. Um, <laughs> or maybe it was because they were exhausted from the movie that they were like, you know how sometimes when you don't sleep, you get super emotional? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's kind of like that. You're like, you're prone or you're raw, you're vulnerable, you're exposed in a way. <laughs> um, so like, like that, that part really hit. Like if the movie ended there, I almost would have been just as happy as all the great postscript stuff we get. Like I love the Grey Haven specifically, like the real, real ending um, and some of the beats along the way. Um, but it was really like that you bow to no one thing. That's like, God, this was so good. Um, and that's kind of like the lasting impression for me. Um, I will say of the three films, it's probably my least favorite. Um, I actually know it's my least favorite. 
Um, but it still has a lot that I love, specifically Samwise Gamgee, who we will talk about at length today mm-hmm. and more so in future episodes. Um, this is where I met John Noble, who played Denethor. Um, I'm sure Denethor will come up <laughs> in many conversations. Uh, uh, I think the Shelob stuff in this movie is incredible. I think both Frodo's chase scene and then Sam's action scene are both like two different genres with the same villain um, that I'm going to really, really enjoy talking to you guys about. Um, and then the ride of the Rohirrim. I mean, <laughs> that's like the best we are so back moment in cinema ever. <laughs> um, it is just so good when uh, Theoden and his troops like, cr- you know, crest over the sunrising hills, um, the way the Rohan strings kick in, um, the way that they repeat the cut of Eomer charging with the spear Hell at yes. the orcs. <laughs> it's yes. just like the same. <laughs> um, all that stuff. So good. So that's basically where I am with Return of the King. I still think it's an excellent movie. I, I think it's a little bit of a step down from the other two. Um, and I actively, actively dislike the extended edition. Yes, yes absolutely. I, I think that th- that might actually be the thing. The thing we might consistently agree on, like most consistently agree on, I think throughout the Return of the King coverage is probably going to be like the fact that the extended edition is just in every way a step down. Um, and I, I find the extend. Well, we don't have to get into this now, but I'll say it. I'll get it done up top. The extended edition of Return of the King, I find like especially frustrating because, like, whereas Fellowship and to a lesser extent the Two Towers try and bring in more of like the book stuff with the fact that they've got more of the time and energy, the Return of the King extended edition just feels like the kind of hubris um, that we now see. I think coming out, especially in like latter day interviews with the like production team, the hubris that they felt around the material that they were adopting like i feel like that comes out like nothing will Mm -hmm. ever fucking just grate my fucking gear grind my gears rather like quite like the houses of the healing stuff um i can't even get into it anyways whatever fuck the Mm -hmm. we're we're done um so (laughs) yeah i mean yours is like your kind of start is so obviously as we do every single time we do one of these it's just like it could not be further from what mine was because now Mm -hmm. we're at movie three i don't even remember watching return of the king for the first time necessarily i'm sure i was on a couch watching it possibly lying in bed watching it at this point definitely on um totally legal streaming where we definitely paid for the service and definitely did not use recently deceased um casualty of the ukrainian war uh uh websites to to get access to the movie um but i I just kind of remember like this being the movie in particular that had um well, maybe not. Maybe maybe Two Towers was kind of the one that had more of the memes, but Return of the King was definitely the one where like I was like, I think I know exactly what's coming, but only because I know what the memes are. Whereas the Two Towers, I think I knew, oh, these are the memes from it, but I don't really know what the content of this is going to be. Mm-hmm. Like Return of the King, I was like, I think I could probably plot out every beat of this movie <laughs> based off of memes, um, which is, I think, in hindsight, both a good and a bad thing. Um I don't know if I like, well, I mean, I guess like I would have loved to have seen it in a theater. I think that would have been like the ideal way of saying it. But in other ways, I think I am apt to like parts of it more Um, things like the I am no man scene. Um, I am Mm. apt to like more because there was so much hype and because I was prepared for them to fall short of the hype. Um, And then for all of these scenes that had been hyped to death for all like 20 years of my life, um, for those to be 
basically as good, if not better, than what the hype would suggest about them. I think really kind of elevated this movie for me in a way I wasn't fully ready for. Um, it also makes the pitfalls of, of this movie. I think those felt um, maybe not in the moment of watching it for the first time. They didn't feel quite as hard, um, but they later would. Um, I think like there are just enough high points throughout this movie that certainly the first time I was watching it, it just felt like going from holy shit to holy shit to holy shit to holy shit. Um, and then the four endings, um, which I had also kind of heard about in a meme sense, but hadn't quite grasped like just how serious people were about there being like fully four different endings to the movie um and i am like it's tough to keep my attention at the best of times so i remember getting to like aragorn singing i was like why are we doing this like why are we doing this um i don't cry at the hobbit stuff ever i'm not particularly moved by that scene which we'll get to later i suppose and then there's like the gray havens no going back to the shire and sitting in the pub, that I was like, do we need this? And then it was like, oh, right, because Rosie has to be in this and Sam has to, like, don't forget that Sam is straight. Um, and that was mm-hmm. like, okay, I'm bored with this. And then it was the Grey Havens and I was like, oh, kind of cool again, but it is quite late. And then it was like, whatever the last one is, or there's another one before that. Whatever. I don't care. Mount Doom is before that. There were so many that I was like, I had not fully prepared myself for how fucking long of a, an end of a movie it was. And I think even despite that on the first watch, like even despite the lethargy, <laughs> I was still like, God, that's a hell of a movie. Um, and possibly because I was older when I watched these, but like it had that kind of childhood Jedi effect on me where um, it took me quite a while, like quite a few more viewings, probably 10 more viewings before I started being like, maybe this one is the lesser of them. Um, certainly there was also a point as with Jedi where this was my most watched of the films. Um, and I think, well, I mean, I do remember like trying to get out of bed, um, while I was doing, um, my postgrad and like struggling to get out of bed on days and just like having my laptop open next to me and watching the, like basically the battle of the Pelennor fields just over and over and <laughs> over again. Cause I just couldn't face anything else, but I could face watching that battle on repeat and the Aomer, the Aomer spear throw. Like that was really it. That mm-hmm. isn't enough itself. Like this movie could have all have failed in every other way for me. And I, I twigged it the first time I watched it and I continue to twig it now. Like that, that is the thing that will always be peak cinema to me. Um, but but yeah, it is it it is one of these things where it does have that Return of the Jedi kind of effect. Um, and I think certainly after having read the books, <laughs> um, and largely reading the books in defense of this movie, um, it is the one that has also fallen the hardest. I think in in my estimations, um, just because what the Return of the King book is um, versus what the Return of the King movie is are just so like starkly different things and have starkly different sort of um visions and 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 theses and and hopes and dreams and aspirations and all this lovely stuff mr frodo and you know um it's it, they're they're just so different of a thing i still have that kind of affection as much affection as i can feel for it as having been a thing that i first watched age uh 22 but like <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a different one. This is going to be even more than the last two um, movies we did. This one's going to be like personality crisis central for me, I think, as I try and reconcile this still being just a fucking banging movie with how mad it makes me at times. (laughs) Yeah, um, I agree with all of that uh, because, um, you know, usually I've started out these like 
first uh, episodes on a movie, like super high on the movie. And it might sound like I am not super high on this. I am extremely into Return of the King. It's not like I skip it. It's not like I don't look forward to watching it. I love it. Um, And the parts that I love, I love just as much as any parts I love in the first two movies. Um, It's just, you know, relatively, it's hard. It's like hard to say because these are three movies that are generally made the same, made by all the same people, the same creatives, the same ideologies running through it. Um, I just feel like some of the choices made in Return of the King, like you said, don't, um, they're maybe overconfident um, and they're kind of maybe choosing from the wrong stuff. Yeah. Um, And that I think really shows its face in the extended edition more so than this. Um, But in the end, I still think it comes together cohesively. I still think at whatever the Lord of the Rings films are trying to do, the Return of the King accomplishes that. Um, I think a lot of my, you know, points or critiques would point all the way back to the drawing board when they're first coming up with how they're conceptualizing this movie adaptation. Um, But, you know, all that said, it's still full of good moments. And my one defense over the Hobbit stuff is that I actually don't really give a shit about the Hobbits, but the Hobbit stuff in this movie is specifically so good that they made me care about (laughs) no one bowing to them (laughs) at the end of the movie. Yeah, Um, I feel like they all... Um, where I feel like they short shrift a bunch of stuff in this movie, um, especially Faramir, um, especially Eowyn, um, even Aragorn to that extent, to some extent. <laughs> That's good um, when they do that. <laughs> yeah, but like putting that extra emphasis on Sam and Frodo and Merry and Pippin. And for me, it's really about Sam and Pippin specifically yeah. um, that I think really shine in this movie. But I think Merry and uh, Frodo do their jobs just as well. Just it's. It, it's not as easy to praise because they're not doing the sexy stuff that Sam and Pippin are. Um, <laughs> they're also not as sexy as uh, Sean Astin and uh, Billy Boyd, yeah. but um, we'll get into it. Um, <laughs> I feel like this is a good a good starting point for us that we're coming into this with a lot of love, but I think we're going to be just a little bit more critical um, than we have been in our first two films. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing is uh, one of the miracles of this film is that... Um, I don't think a single performance ever falls flat in any of this. Like I'm going to go, I'm going to rail really hard against like Denethor in this film, but I still think John Noble's performance is absolute magic. Um, There, there are so many, you know, you know, okay. David Wenham's may fall flat, but like everyone else's, I think is just so strong. And it's one of these (laughs) films where like, uh, you know, against some of the things that really should knock it down. Like there are, there are parts of this film that really should put it into a B tier film. Um, and yet, despite it, everything else about this film, the the cast, uh, the production value, everything helps to elevate it above it. And I, and I think that kind of tension is just absolutely fascinating the whole way through here.
We start this film on Arrakis. Mm -hmm. Our old friend Smeagol is on the lookout for worm sign. <laughs> I thought the worms would be bigger. No, no, we are somewhere near the Great River, and we get to see the lovely face of Andy Serkis for a brief few minutes, fishing with his cousin Deagle on a beautiful, idyllic day. This circus can conceivably swim, as the two pals are out on the water for a little bit of fishing. It seems like Deagle catches a fish, but turns out it's the opposite. The fish takes Deagle for a dip in the water. In the bottom of the seabed, a gold trinket shines and captures Deagle's eye. He scoops it up and takes it back ashore. On land, Deagle is enraptured with the small ring, not even noticing his skulking friend sneaking up behind him. Why? To be honest, the first time I saw this, I thought Smeagol might be lying about his birthday, perhaps as a <laughs> trick to attain the ring for himself, but I think it's actually his birthday, and trust me, I want special treats all day on my birthday as well, so I think it's totally fair that he asks for the ring. Ominous strings and a fate drumbeat quicken behind the actors as Smeagol and Deagle struggle, trying to claw at each other not unlike Boromir grasping after Frodo. <laughs> That drum quickens even more, intensifies as Smeagol chokes his friend, and then the beat dies out just like his friend does. The briefest moment of shock runs across Circus's face before he turns to his bounty, or as he calls it, Precious. It's full-on Gollum's position as we watch the hideously cute Smeagol slowly morph into the cutely hideous Gollum. Weeping in the rain, broken teeth chomping into raw fish, and of course, more and more dirt under his fingernails, all of the greatest hits. Exiled from his people, banished by sunlight, Gollum crawls into the darkness. We come to in the present, the one ring leitmotif kicking in as the camera pans over a sleepy time Sam to a wide awake Frodo, looking much, much worse than even in the last minutes of The Two Towers. Gollum tries to get the sleepy heads up and moving, and Sam kicks himself for resting too long. Of course, it's hard to tell. The days are growing dark in Athelion, night and day smashing into one ominous gloom. Mount Doom gives a loud rumble, which I think Sam mistakes for his stomach as he goes to the food supply, but only to feed Frodo. Sam lies about his own hunger, but there's enough for Mr. Frodo. Are you? Oh no, I'm not hungry. At least he's not for Lambus bread. Sam. All right. We don't have that much left. We have to be careful. We're going to run out. You go ahead and eat that, Mr. Fool. I've rationed it. There should be enough. For what? The journey home. Gollum then leads them into the very dead lands outside of the actual Deadlands of Mordor, and our boys are back on the road.
we are we are so back. So the first thing I actually pinged, and by first time I mean this is the first time I actually realized it, is that all three films technically start with a flashback, and I didn't even really think about that until I started coming up with the notes for this episode. No, me neither. Holy shit. <laughs> Um, and I mean, the Gandalf thing is like kind of like a very small flashback as in it's like taking one step back as opposed to Galadriel's prologue or this segment, which is taking, you know, several hundreds of years or thousands of years going backwards. But it is something that I was just like, huh, I never thought about that before. But I guess that is some kind of uh, structural consistency between uh, these three movies. Yeah, we can call it that. Um, although I guess, okay, so maybe this now makes my question in retrospect look stupid, but like... Coming off of the high of the end of, you know, uh, the two towers and, and just the absolute sparks and glory that that is that 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 ending. Um, is this what you were expecting for the start of the last film in the Lord of the Rings trilogy? No, uh, not <laughs> at all, um, because uh, with the previous two flashbacks, they are pretty big in scale, like Galadriel's pro prologue is, you know, wars of days long gone and you know gandalf versus the balrog is about as big as it gets in terms of a one-on-one -on -one fight in middle earth um so i was expecting something big you know it's like the whole attack of the clones philosophy that you have to blow something up in the first few minutes um to you know get the audience's attention uh but in retrospect i actually have come to like this even though i think it is kind of superfluous in a way um i kind of like that this opening is very small um because the point of these movies is a very small thing that's in Gollum's hands to start this movie and then you know we cut back to present day and frodo yep. um so i like the fact that they know this movie is going to be big like scope and scale is not going to be an issue with adapting return of the king so i do kind of like um where that this movie kind of starts small um and then because we're going to get so big whereas with the two towers um i feel like you kind of want to go big because a lot of the early part of that movie is really kind of moving characters around and getting new characters into place and you know introducing a lot of new stuff um whereas this one we kind of have a lay of the land of course we're going to meet some new characters like denethor and um mm, huh. Uh, the the ghost king, I guess. <laughs> uh, but um, I I feel like I this one knows it can kind of it doesn't need to do that big opening thing because it's going to have plenty of that stuff as soon as we get into the movie properly. Yeah, see, because I I think that's kind of like um I I think that's right. Like that's the the kind of structural role it's playing. It, it also feels like for me a kind of moment of. The Two Towers really gets away from The Hobbits, and it really gets away from The Shire. Um, I think mm -hmm. the most we actually get of The Shire is Mary's reference to it um, at the end mood, I think. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, I think you're right. And, and there's just like, you know, th this thing that started with The Hobbit, well, it didn't actually start with The Hobbit, it actually started with Gladriel, but fuck that and fuck Gladriel. It actually starts with <laughs> a Hobbit reading in The Shire. Um, they need to kind of recenter it as like, don't forget where it is that we've come from. Um, and then also, I think um, the Two Towers um, is not really a movie. Like, not that any of these movies, and not that any of the books necessarily are about Frodo. Um, but the Two Towers is also, I think, the movie that gets the farthest away from Frodo in particular. Um, there are mm -hmm. so many other characters that that really just take the floor there. Um, and this is like the, the 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 team kind of going, okay, right. We need to remind ourselves like what the kind of 
human cost of this is and and the human cost is the shire um and the human cost is also the humanity the hobbitry i guess of frodo baggins um and to recenter that like i agree it probably is like not unnecessary but like you know they they probably could have cut this down if they needed to um to put other bigger things in but i also think it's kind of their way of um not making up for but rolling back the kind of grandeur not just in a structural sense but like in a in a kind of narrative sense and 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 reminding us that like at the end this is a story about the 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 struggle to keep your soul um and to do that by showing us what happens when you get sent to a prison camp uh not prison camp uh the shire um and are a foreman named Gollum. um i think that's like that's a really sound way of doing that there may have been other ways. I suspect there are probably lots of other ways that they could have approached this, which I'll get into in the token, token, Tolkien section. Um, but yeah, it, it is just kind of a nice start to, and a good kind of inflection point as well against that kind of lovely start with Frodo after the prologue in Fellowship. Mm-hmm. I think I think I really like what you're saying here. It almost acts as like a thesis or maybe more accurately as an overture for this movie. Like this is going to be the Hobbit movie. Um, and <laughs> it even kind of sets it up because it's um, it's kind of. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> it kind of uh, even like Smeagol and Deagle as like a binary two people playing off each other. Like the Hobbits themselves are usually paired with each other. Like it's Frodo and Sam or it's Merry and Pippin. And then this movie even so <laughs> is like still keeping that binary alive. But it's like Pippin and faramir or pippin and gandalf usually or it's mary and eowyn kind of thing so like there is something to the duality i feel like there's a lot of what's going to be in this movie structurally um is kind of here and i do think a lot of the high points of this movie tend to be a lot of those kind of small character moments like gandalf and pippin talking about what lays beyond death and all that like those stuff that stuff's all great so I feel like that does kind of get hinted at like that's kind of the thesis for this movie here yeah um and then Another thing I'd like about this, and this might be something of a bygone thing, like not something I think we'd ever think about in 2023, but I think back in 2003, we were thinking about like the two towers. Andy Serkis just gave this incredible performance. It sure would be nice to see his face on screen at some point in the movies. (laughs) Um, So it is like, I kind of enjoyed that kind of like production tail wagging the movie dog, I guess, where it just like, this guy is giving like an all-timer Hall of Fame performance. He's probably not going to be rewarded for it outside of like an MTV movie award. Um, so let's let let's let Andy Serkis, who wasn't really a known actor at the time, you know, let him have a little bit of FaceTime. It's really great that he has the same Gollum voice, even as you know, a Hobbit or a Harfoot or whatever the hell he is. Um, it, so I I kind of like that part, even though it is kind of you know maybe like just a little treat for the actor more so. Um, than anything else, but I actually just really like that part to like reward him and give him some time to get his actual face on screen. Um, and God, what a face it's been over the last 20 years of cinema and television. Um, God bless Andy Serkis, man. Amen to that. Yeah. And it's also like, I think it also is a good flex as well because Andy Serkis is like, not to say that, you know, 
the 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 motion capture part of the Gollum performance isn't acting. Of course it is, but I don't think it's something that we necessarily, as we're sitting down in the movie theater, think about as immediately as quote unquote good acting. Um, and this is good flex to be like, not only can he do voice acting and mocap, he can also do straight up live acting, and and that is also an immensely compelling performance he is able to to give. Don't forget what this cast is able to do right now. We're going into the rest of the story. Like that's also a lovely little flex. Uh, shifting a little bit of attention to his partner, uh, Deagle, um, Deagle, I guess, briefly appeared in Fellowship of the Ring, um, because when you see, uh, when Galadriel's giving her prologue and they, she talks about the ring was found by someone at least, ex- or whatever it was, um, uh, it's actually Deagle's hand that picks it up, um, out of the riverbank, and then it cuts to Gollum's dirty fingernails, like, unfurling to show the ring in its hand. Um, I do kind of like that it kind of recontextualizes that bit of the prologue from Fellowship of the Ring, that we actually see... Um, that it was Deagle who picked it up and not Smeagol. Um, it's one of those things that works when you first see it in Fellowship, and then when you see it in Return of the Lord, like, oh, okay, interesting. Um, maybe it's not that interesting because Deagle is not very interesting. <laughs> but it, it it is one of those things that I always just like to flag as something. It's like, oh, I didn't know that was the story here. Yeah. Uh, Deagle is played by Thomas Robbins, and he is a New Zealand actor, director, and pr- producer who seems like he's just been a pal with Peter Jackson. He's been involved in a lot of his work. Um, so I feel like this is also just a little bit, even though he is an actor giving him a little bit of, you know, screen time along with Andy Serkis, like if we're doing this fun thing, why not? Um, he did also appear in the Hobbit films, I guess, uh, Unexpected Journey. He played a young Thrain too. And don't you dare fucking ask me what part of the movies <laughs> that's from. Um, I have a vague idea, but I, I'm not willing to commit that to a microphone. Nope. I could not even guess that either. Um, my only contribution to this discussion is that when he's they have that shot of him um holding his breath and his cheeks are all puffed out he looks like matt berry and i every time i do watch this movie um at home i try and do a matt berry golem voice and i've never been able to do it but i am going to open this call to anybody listening to this if you are capable of doing matt berry doing golem Please, God, record yourself and send it to me so that I can immediately ascend um, to heaven. It it would be the best day of my life if I ever heard that. Uh, this episode is now officially dedicated to the TikTok teens of America <laughs> and beyond. Um, anyways, getting a little bit into, um, I guess I don't really have any notes on the murder of Deagle. Um, I kind of mentioned, uh, how it was kind of shot and soundtracked during or scored rather during the recap. Um, I do like how they're using, uh, the drums. The drums are not something that often shows up in the Lord of the Rings score. It's usually safe for the orcs. Um, but, uh, you kind of feel it. It's used very much as a heartbeat Mm -hmm. in, uh, this scene. Um, because as he's choking, you just kind of hear Deagle's heartbeat die out as he's being choked to death. Um, but um, I, I appreciate the murder. I don't know if I have anything else to significantly say about the murder itself. <laughs> I, I think, like, for me, I, the thing that I really like about it is, it, it, you know, it's bloodless. It's a bloodless murder. But it's unbelievably graphic. Um, and, and I think for me, more than any of the other violence, the cartoonish violence, um, and possibly because it is bloodless, um, more so than any of the other violence that you see, um, bar, I think, one guy getting stabbed in the chest in Osgiliath, um, either in this one or in two towers i can't remember um this is the most like kind of shocking bit of violence for me it's it's always the one that kind of stops me dead in my tracks um and and i and i like that it is this movie in microcosm it is you know 
um, or maybe not the entire movie, but it's the story of Sam and Frodo um, in microcosm, but you know, dark side ending. Um, and and just to see that level of like shocking violence so quickly into this, and for it to set that kind of um, panic, I think, or potential panic in your mind as you go through this every time you see Gollum, every time Gollum is hovering around. Frodo and Sam and every time you see Sam and Frodo interacting you just know that there is this potential that that could be what happens to Sam um it kind of adds a horror movie um kind of tone to to what's going on in the Sam and Frodo story um and and I think it adds this kind of level of like genre characterization for for sam you know i always like a movie where every character is living out a different genre piece and i think sam is definitely living out like a slow burn horror movie (laughs) for for most of this movie um and this is the kind of moment that shocking you know jarring visceral bit of violence here bloodless violence here um but kind of pedestrian you know it doesn't take a, a, a warrior of enormous skill to choke someone out um it it takes something as sort of gormless and witless as Gollum to to choke someone to death and it's that kind of pedestrian you know common violence um that becomes this ultimate threat um for this one element of of the story and and setting it up like that it with this ever-present skulking threat of Gollum um it it, it is it, even though the heartbeat has been snuffed it ends up being this kind of incidental heartbeat for this the plot of this movie yeah, I actually uh, love what you're saying about bloodless violence, but I'm going to take it in a completely other direction. <laughs> um, I like because you can say like, you know, in one sense, the story of the War of the Rings starts here, like the rediscovery of the ring itself, um, even though like the actual resolution happens, what, 600 years later or whatever it is. Um, but it also ends with bloodless violence and not maybe not even violent, but like the destruction of the ring is, you know, nonviolent in a way, I guess, like. Um, you know, Frodo didn't have to go and stab Sauron through the heart or anything to, uh, you know, cast the ring into the fire. And as we'll get to uh, when we get to that part of the movie and we'll talk about the books, Frodo very specifically decides not to carry a sword in Mordor um, as like, you know, a statement, um, you know, because his mission is not about winning in battle, but it's, you know, stealth and a little bit of trickery and whatnot. Um, so I like that the ending of the story of the ring is... Uh, bloodless in a way and then this is also kind of bloodless um in between the two there's going to be a lot of blood so i'm not saying that it's a bloodless movie but i do like that those two things can kind of be tied together in the same way yeah but the but the bloodshed in this movie like there is an enormous amount of it but it's all by and large a distraction um and and Mm -hmm. and the 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 bloodless violence is the violence that actually matters these are the stories that matter mr frodo um but like I, i i like that the that kind of point um, especially given, you know, the the wider context of um, both the writing of the books, you know, the war that killed more people than any other war ever, um, World War II, Rage Igmal, um, J.R.R. Tolkien is writing the book um, that this is based off of, and then um, the, the rise in targeted warfare, um, which is not bloodless per se, but it is bloodless on a, or blood loss on a, on a micro scale um, that really springs up the 1990s and this idea that we can basically take war and turn war into something that only happens elsewhere no matter where we are standing um in the western world um it war is always something that happens elsewhere war will never be something that ever happens on our quote-unquote our lands ever again um that kind of looming in as this important historical trend of the 1990s like that looming in the background of 
um, of this movie, um, particularly two years after um, uh, 9-11, which obviously wasn't a factor in the production of it, but certainly something that would be in the cultural zeitgeist as this movie is coming out and and Mm -hmm. as this movie was being edited. um, And and that kind of um, the bloodshed is a distraction um the it is the the violence that is done in cleaner cleaner and tidier and um potentially less bombastic ways that is the violence that matters um is is or is thematically such an important part of the lord of the rings as a whole um it is of course the reason why the strategy um of tying a ring to a chicken and sending that chicken running to mount doom is as successful as it is because bloodshed is impressive but bloodless violence is what wins the war mm-hmm. now that we're in an era of surgical strikes and sanctions um we don't have the quite the same blood spill that we did back when tolkien was writing this um but the part i really want to really want to talk about is the little montage of Gollum becoming Gollum. Yeah. um just because i really appreciate just how gross it is <laughs> like there's a lot of like slimy close-ups of just like the lower half of Gollum's mouth like he must have gone through like three or four different wigs for just this like 20 seconds of video and the hair just looks more decrepit and gray and gangly um, each time. His skin is getting wetter and slipper, slipperier, if that's a real word. Um, just the way the guts of the fish ooze out of his mouth as his like broken teeth are biting into it. Like I'm not someone who really wants a lot of grossness in my uh, cinema. It's just not something that works for me. I don't watch a lot of horror or body horror. Um, but like a little bit of it can go a long way. It's very much like the Indiana Jones style, like a snake full of pits or a pit full of snakes, rather. Um, just like something that makes you creepy, feel creepy, crawly for just like, you know, half a minute or a minute. Um, I think it's really effective. And then letting Andy Serkis kind of narrate over that. Um, I, I just love all of it. Yep. It's perfect. Um, and I, and I think as well, the like solitude of it, um, is interesting is an interesting mirror i guess it's going to be hard in this to not do these ham-fisted comparisons between Gollum and frodo the whole way through but like here they're they're obviously really gunning for it because this like awful transition that that um Gollum is going through um in this cave um is is planted here and now because we need to be watching frodo with that lens and we need to be going oh my god is frodo about to become this um but it's the it's the loneliness it's the solitude and you know sam lovely sam would never let frodo be that fucking filthy like yeah frodo's nails are gonna be a little gross but like it's not gonna be this bad and there is so much of this like loneliness and the darkness and and the sorrow that 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 surrounds Gollum and all of the things the bad things that are happening to him that though they are set here as they are to, to remind us that this is what we need to be watching out for in frodo like there's also the fact that you know sam is there that we will even if we can't fully admit it to ourselves through the course of this movie until the very end like Sam won't let this happen. Um, and 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 to have just the, you know, the close-up shots of Gollum, there is really, there's no, like, 1950s hammer horror transition in shadow. Um, <laughs> you know, no, no Nosferatu creeping up the, the, the stairway. Um, we are seeing it all about as close in as we could possibly be seeing it. Um, and, and that's for a reason. That's really just to emphasize how lonely and how detached from everything else Gollum, Smeagol, Gollum is. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing, like a lot of what Gollum is saying in his narration here, 
about how he forgot the taste of bread and the sound of trees and the softness of the wind. Like Frodo basically repeats that on the like footsteps of Mount Doom when he's like, he just does the bougier version because he's like, oh, I yeah. miss my pims and my strawberries. Fuck off, watch cut. <laughs> <laughs> I think they definitely poured, uh, pulled that back for the movie because I'm pretty sure in the movie he just says um, he can't recall the taste of food or the touch of grass or something like that. He's naked in the dark. Um, nothing between him and the world of fire or something like that. Uh, but yeah, like like that's like this moment is very much setting up that moment in a way um, because that is Frodo on the doorstep of becoming Gollum, just like he's at the doorstep of Doom or whatever. Um, and then I think a very notable visual flourish in here is when Gollum finally crawls into his little hole. Um, we see the transition from his like semi-human eyes. He clearly has contacts in at this point. It's not like Andy Serkis's eyes are in the Gollum face anymore. Um, but then they do a transition to like the CGI motion capture face that we're familiar with uh, from, you know, the two towers specifically, um, which is, a you know, it's obviously going from something that's kind of, you know, practical to a digital effect um but i think it's pretty seamless it works perfectly for the character and it is in its own way a little thesis for what these movies are it is the transition from practical filmmaking to digital filmmaking and i wish we could cast digital filmmaking into the fire but so it goes i guess yeah yeah amen i i think there's also like I mean, I love, I love, I love, I love, I love this shot. It is absolutely one of my favorite shots in the whole series. I just think it's fantastic. I also think it's kind of answering a question that nobody was asking, which is like, I think it's in there to hide the seam of like, oh, well, how does Gollum go from having normal eyes to having fucked up eyes? Which is like, as someone sitting down to watch a movie where like a weird fucked up bear dragon goblin thing just fought a wizard, like not really in the mindset to be like poking holes in the logic of it all. Um, but like if that question, you know, uh, what is it though? Greg from succession boy, uh, voice, like if it is to be asked, so it must be asked, um, you know, how do we hide the seams of this transition from like practical eyes to, to CGI eyes? And it's a really great way of doing it because they just lean into it. They really fully show you that shit happening. And it's kind of like the like Dorothy opening the house door into Oz shot of these movies where like we go from the sepia oh. to the technicolor. We're going from the practical to the Gollum world. Um uh computer Gollum integration. Um and 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 I think there's just something nice about kind of we're we're not like fully seeing up the skirts of this production. The, you know, they're not really lifting our their skirts up to show us what's under, but but they kind of are. And and it's kind of fun and it brings you into the magic. Even the magic of the story a bit more just to see that non-seam seam. seam. Mm -hmm. I, I actually really love what you're saying there. That's great. Um, oh God, it is such a good transition. I did not think we would sit here spending five minutes talking about the eye <laughs> transition, but um, it, it, it is fantastic. Uh, but that kind of uh, closes out the flashback prologue that we get to this movie. And we return to modern times. Um, that is Frodo and Sam on the road, not the Charlie Chaplin movie. Um, <laughs> and actually, Frodo is not sleeping. And as we'll find out, he's not eating. Um, this was um, I don't, this is not a criticism, but this was just a little bit of a jolt to me, um, just because I assumed this was happening minutes after like the two towers ended, uh, maybe like the next day or whatever. And Frodo did not seem quite this fucked up at the end. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, part of me wasn't really worried about that. It's just like, oh, as he gets closer to 
Mordor, like it's just going to get worse and worse on top of just the amount of time that he's been carrying the ring at this point also weighing on him. Um, but it is obviously they're setting this up and it's a very deliberate transition from Gollum talking about how, um, you know, he forgot the taste of food and all that stuff. And then we cut to Frodo and he's not sleeping or eating, which immediately puts you into this is the path that he's on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I agree. I think it's I think it, it's it's a cut. I also find it jarring. Um, I also I think this more than the Gollum prologue, the Smeagol prologue is the bit that I find a bit unnecessary. Like, yeah, maybe we needed to see Frodo become slightly more fucked up before we see him again. Um, but I feel like if they'd just gone Smeagol legal prologue to welcome my lords to Isengard, um, <laughs> then that would be like a bit more, I don't know. I just feel like that would work a little better for me because I don't really feel like I need to. It feels a bit ham-fisted to be like, this dude's really fucked up looking. Hey, wait, look at who else could become really fucked up looking. Like, I feel like it's almost a lapse in trust in, in, in the the audience to understand that when they're like showing Gollum's fucked up face and being like, look at what the ring did, that we're not going to immediately connect that to the ring bearer. Um, I'm also kind of, I also kind of feel this way because um, Athelion I, we did this already in, in the last movie, so I'm not going to retread it too much. But Athelion is absolutely the greatest disappointment for me of these films. Like, I, I feel like Athelion just looks like a backlot, like not a studio backlot, <laughs> but like there's an like there should be the like wrecked building, like uh, the the wreckage, the ruins of a CVS somewhere in there, and there's like parking lot beneath most of the ground out there. It just does not look like. Even in decay, like it does not look like the Athelion that I think of in my head. Um, so, so seeing having to see more of Athelion <laughs> is always a bit like, why? Why am I doing this? Why am I being forced to see this? Um, and I also don't know that like we really benefit much from getting the oh sorry, like the daylight sucks here. Part of it, it's it's again, I think it's kind of answering a question that nobody really asked, and I don't think anyone going into these movies would be like confused about why shit is getting darker the further like the closer we get to the heart of darkness i think like as a movie going audience you're just primed to accept that kind of stuff um and in a lot of ways i feel like this this small little scene in between all of the other scenes starts to lay out for me like a lot of the problems that i have with this film in general which is like why are we spending time here instead of spending time with x y and z things that were cut from the books um, one of the ones that I know book fans online love to point out is like the crunching skulls and uh, in paths of the dead um, as like, why are we doing this instead of doing anything else like in Gondor? Um, but this from this scene, this 30 seconds or however long it is, minute and 45 seconds, this is actually the first of many bits to me where I'm like, if we had cut this, we would not have lost anything from the film. And we could have had 10 different things from the books that would have been vastly more impactful um which is probably just setting the stage for how i'm gonna bitch about everything in the next however many episodes <laughs> of this podcast yeah. i was about to say i'm gonna be cautious here because i'm pretty much just gonna talk about everything we're gonna talk about in like upcoming episodes so i don't want to just waste it all here um but the one scene i find super superfluous is the frodo scene that comes after this one um that's a, a little further in the movie where it's Gollum talking to himself in the puddle yep. and then sam discovers him 
Um, because a lot of that is literally the end of the Two Towers monologue. They just needed Sam to discover it. Um, and I was thinking, like, I really don't like this. I, like, I don't like that scene anyways. Um, I don't know why. It just never really worked for me. Um, and part of it, I think, is because they were showing that as a free preview long before the two, uh, Return of the King was in theaters. <laughs> um, and it didn't really... I'm like, this is just ending for the Two Towers, man. Why are you showing me this again? Uh, and I think some of that is also, like, the culture is, like, it's, even though it's a sequel, you have to at least pre represent basic information to the audience, which I think is less an issue now. Um, but I was thinking about it. I think the real thing is Frodo and Sam really have nothing to do until they get to Minas Morgul. Yeah. Um, like they have nothing to do. And a lot of after we talk about this scene, minus the Gollum puddle discussion we'll talk about in a few episodes, everything after the scene is moving pieces into place that are like Rohan and Gondor, right? Um, we have to like see everything with the Palantir. Then we have to get Gandalf and Pippin to Minas Tirith so that they can be there to see the big, you know, light pyre that shoots up out of Minas Morgul. And that's when Frodo and Sam's story really kicks off in this movie. Like everything of them before that is kind of unnecessary. But, and then I think that's a case where it's like, we can't have the audience forget that Frodo and Sam exist. Um, so we need to make sure that they have at least, you know, five to 10 minutes worth of screen time in the first hour of the movie, even though they're absolutely going to dominate the last two thirds of it. Yeah. Which is also, I, I just think it's an interesting contrast to the books where like Sam and Frodo are fully off the scene for the whole of book five. Like they are just not here at all, except in the abstract, except for via them being discussed by other people and um, and reading book five definitely takes longer than now admittedly probably not much longer than watching this movie in full but slightly longer than watching this movie in full and like it is a bit like right well if tolkien could trust people to not forget that the, like little ring bearer named proto is like a key part of this across three million pages of book five like i think we could have been trusted for like 60 minutes 90 minutes even of this movie to like remember who frodo is if only through like indirect references to him or direct references to him by other characters without having to see his face um and it feels to me like it could have just been like <sighs> smeagol deagle prologue maybe you cut to them at some point just wandering through a billion um maybe um i don't even know that you really need to do that at all and then we get to them in Minas Morgul, and you've got everyone else kind of moving around in all the other places. You have other hobbits who are reminding us of the existence of hobbits. Like, Merry and Pippin do a fine job of that. That, for me, would probably mm -hmm. have been enough. It would have sufficed. I was about to say, this is actually a place where, like, the one extended edition scene I don't mind is where they find the statue with the head oh, of flowers. Yes. And, like, that scene should have been in it yep. and this scene and then the one of Gollum talking to the puddle should not have been yes. like that should have been seen and that way it's also cool because that scene almost is serving Aragorn's story more when he's off page um yes and I, I don't know I just think no, yeah, functionally absolutely. and adapting the book all of that stuff just works better um because I really love when one plot thread reinforces another plot thread and isn't necessarily serving its own like I always love when things are done deftly like that yeah. um I think that's the way to go and that way you can maybe have a good scene in Athelion <laughs> um too because that's probably the best scene in all in these movies in that area at least since the oliphant showed up in the two towers mm -hmm. um so i i really think that would have been the way to go with this yeah yeah absolutely agreed all right um and i guess the last thing we should talk about is you know this uh scene is titled just like our podcast episode a journey to the crossroads 
Um, the next episode is The Road to Isengard. Um, so we are hitting a lot of emphasis on roads. Um, I don't know if Tolkien ever wrote a song about roads or we ever heard <laughs> someone singing about in the movies, but I feel like that is also very... It's. I like this because it's kind of sub, sublimated into the story as opposed to being like, back to the road again, Mr. Frodo, um, or Gandalf saying, now the road to Isengard. Like, like they're not like <laughs> calling it out, but it's very clear that that is something that the people who are adapting this uh, book into a movie are at least thinking about. And I appreciate that because um, that I think is pretty deftly handled. Yeah. Yep. And, and I think also like um, it maybe doesn't quite work because like the crossroads in the books are literal crossroads like they're fully yeah. crossroads like as uh, like narratively like geographically they are crossroads for all the characters involved like they're they are damn good bit of symbolic like symbolism um and and i feel like the it's lost here <laughs> it is a bit lost here but getting that road stuff back into it and and i think also having that kind of unspoke like that that kind of implicit reminder that like this this was a place that was once civilized um roads don't appear in, in nature um uh, roads are a, a, a human contrivance um and so reminding that us that no matter how far into this we have traveled there there is still you know people were here before um and people if this quest is done correctly will be here again um and having that i think in it is good <laughs> it is good <laughs> i will give it that i'm not sure how much else i can give it from that though <laughs> yeah now i'm just thinking of like a worst case scenario where they put the literal crossroads <laughs> into the movie and they have some dumb line from sam is like well mr frodo this is our last chance to turn back if we really wanted to um or some bullshit like that or we could you know take the road south into harad and take a ship to wherever and we can be gay or whatever sam stands um, at the crossroads and goes if i take one more step this is the farthest from home i've ever been <laughs> okay that i would have actually liked <laughs> oh man Well, we sure are at a crossroads then, um, and <laughs> that's all I can make of that. Um, it basically like the the end of the Two Towers book for me, and I think also important since we haven't done a tol token Tolkien um, uh, quarter in however many podcast episodes. Um, a good thing to maybe get back into reminding everybody is is that like these books were meant to be published as a unified volume they were not meant to be published in threes it was a paper shortage at the end of the war and publishers being cheap um that basically prevented the the publication of these books as a single volume and instead saw um fellowship and two towers published within um a year of each other and then two towers and return of the king published within six months of each other um that said i don't think that changes the fact that like um narratively these three books well one books one and two uh, three and four and then five and six certainly books four and books five um i think start and end damn near perfectly for me um and and it's really interesting for me the ways in which these were changed like the the start and end of these books were changed to fit the movies um the whole revamping at the end of the crossroads um and and the end of athelian or the middle of athelian i guess more accurately um in the two towers film from how it is 
dealt with in, in the, the books is one thing. And then also the opening um, and who we are with at the opening of The Return of the King is um, is the other one. And, and I think chiefly as we think about why these changes are made, um, I, I think we need to think about like who gets the point of view and who gets that kind of like narratively privileged perspective. I don't mean like privilege in terms of privilege theory. I mean like who, who the book's actually fucking talking to in a given moment. Um, so to kind of set up a bit of this kind of chat, um, I think it would be helpful if we went through um, what the end of The Two Towers actually is um, and then what the start of Return of the King is um and so for those who haven't read the two towers the two towers does not end um <laughs> it doesn't end anything like it does in the movie at the end of the two <laughs> towers um frodo got snatched um that is something we won't see in this movie for about another nine hours um so frodo is snatched um and sam has to enter um mordor alone um and he is also recently uh, bumped shoulders with our good pal shag rat um <laughs> shag rat the orc and his pal fox mice um and and so sam is you know at the height of his loneliness he's going into the scariest chapter literally and figuratively of of his story he's doing it all alone we don't know um what's going to happen with frodo and and all of that i think is really perfectly encapsulated by these final lines of um of the book which i will not read to you the great door is slammed too Boom. The bars of iron fell into place inside. Clang. The gate was shut. Sam hurled himself against the bolted brazen plates and fell senseless to the ground. He was out in the darkness. Frodo was alive, but taken by the enemy. And then I want to contrast this to uh, how we pick up Return of the King, um, keeping in mind that this is the cliffhanger. This Frodo was alive, but was taken by the enemy is the cliffhanger upon which we we leave our heroes for a whopping six months at the end of the two towers. Um, and, you know, we as the readership in uh, 1955 are stuck wondering, oh, my God, what is going to happen to Frodo? I can't wait to buy the next version or the next book in this series so that I can find out what happened to Frodo, the only character I'm interested in. Uh, and then we open up. Our copies, our fresh coffee, crack the spine, uh, smell the lovely new book smell, and open up to book uh, chapter one of book five of The Lord of the Rings, and we get... Pippin looked out from the <laughs> shelter of Gandalf's cloak. He wondered if he was awake or still sleeping, still in the swift-moving dream in which he had been wrapped so long since the great ride began. The dark world was rushing by, and the wind sang loudly in his ears. He could see nothing but the wheeling stars and away to his right, vast shadows against the sky where the mountains of the south marched past. Sleepily, he tried to reckon the times and stages of their journey, but his memory was drowsy and uncertain. Yeah, this is a uh, Willie Nelson. This is a Willie Nelson song. <laughs> um, he is the gambler. Uh, so two more different um, pieces of writing, I think, have never been compared. I mean, obviously they have, but here we are. Um, but... But, but it is fascinating, I think, the, the extent, and as we were kind of talking about before, like the sense of narrative trust and like we have shot Frodo into the darkness, we put him in a cannon and shot him into the darkness and let the cons pick him up. Um, and we are not going to let you know where the fuck he is or how he is doing for a very, very long time, for about 100 and some 180 pages. Um, and instead, we're going to pick up, I would point out rather similarly to this movie with a character who is a lot less threatening in some ways or a lot less imposing, I guess, um, than Frodo. Um, Frodo has always had a bit of a sense of like, 
he's an important guy. We know we have to follow him. Um, Pippin is, the, or has thus far in the series, in the books, been a kind of ineffectual character. He's a bit of a bop, as much as hobbits are allowed to have bops. But he is this, like, you know, kind of prince <laughs> of, a, of a hobbit, um, which is a great joke that's going to crop up a little more once we get into Minas Tirith. Um, and then he's done something really stupid, and now he's had his um, bum smacked, and he's getting taken off to timeout where he's going to be made to sit with a dunce cap. And, and this dunce of a character, um, who is not at all princely yet, um, is narrating the absolutely horrifying things that he's saying around him, but is kind of a little too sleepy and a little too stoned to really know what's going on. So he's giving us these kind kind of silly, kind of childlike um, visions into the dark, fucked up war zone he's now entering. Um, and it's just absolutely and completely different in every imaginable way to, um, to, to what we finish out the two towers with. But then also, I think, um, is a far more literally grounded and present um, entry back into the story than the one that we are given in, in the movies, which is like, all right, let's go back uh, 100, 200 years and see how this little guy ended up so fucked up. This is like, no, we are literally in movement. We are on a horse that's sprinting. We are going into the heart of the war zone. And also we've got um, Seth Rogen and Pineapple Express here to tell you about it. <laughs> oh man, that is so great. Yeah, I never thought about that. That is such a wild change, but also I can kind of see the value in it um like you said it is very like touch grass to open return of the king <laughs> like you know you're ending the two towers on this big dramatic epic moment in the heart of darkness literally you know on that verge of kirithungal uh after fighting a massive spider and here's just pippin literally touching grass after theoretically smoking grass not long ago <laughs> um i really love that and i never really thought about it in the context either of how return of the king book five ends which is also from pippin's point of view as he's kind of getting smashed under the bodies of orcs and he hears someone shouting the eagles are coming um and that kind of is where it hangs where it leaves off and then we pick up back with frodo and sam at the end of the two towers for book six and beyond um, so I, I love all of that. I just never kind of really tied that together until you pulled those out and presented them to me. It's one of these things as well that like I, Tolkien, um, for all that he gets shit for being like a bit holy, not holier than that, I suppose, but like it's a bit high and mighty the prose, which I don't think is actually a fair or reasonable criticism at all. But like he does get a lot of shit <laughs> um, to that effect. And I think it's interesting how much Tolkien himself is always trying to undermine that that sort of grandiosity of prose and of narrative by giving us the quote unquote lesser of the characters to tell us about it. Um, you know, what we are getting here is um our first real sort of official entry into Gondor, which is the last of the true kingdoms of men. Um, it is the last kind of holdout this this Byzantium um in uh in a in a medieval world in a world that is facing uh, a literal dark ages um and instead of having this narrated to us by someone like aragorn the king who will come it is instead narrated narrated to us by by someone who is very small in this world and 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 who um is probably underselling it by his experience of either under or overselling it by his experience of this world because he doesn't know the history of Gondor and Arnor, um, because he doesn't know the the histories um, relayed in the, you know the Quintus Silmarillion. Um, he is someone who maybe doesn't have this like complete appreciation of the things that he is seeing, and yet for that being 
what it is, that is why it is important that Tolkien puts these words in his mouth and, and lets Pippin be the one to to be our eyes and ears on the ground in this, um, because it ratchets it ratchets it it down a little bit. Um and by contrast, there's not really that same um emphasis on like we have a we pick our narrators or we pick our sort of key people, key characters in the given frame based off of what they do to undermine um, the tenor, the tone and tenor, or build up the tone and tenor of a scene in the movie. Because we just go to Frodo and Sam because we need to know that things are sad. We're not going because we're like, oh, this is going to be weird and fucked up for a hobbit, if that makes sense. So that one of the other kind of bits of this is is that as you know, as we get into um, into Gondor itself uh, and, and into the kind of big wide world of big battle, there are a couple chapters that we actually get um, where we don't actually have a Hobbit narrating at all. And these are also in Return of the King, and they'll come a little later, but we'll talk about them. But we never actually see Frodo's story, Frodo and Sam's story, narrated by anyone else other than Frodo or Sam. Um, in the books, whereas I think one of the things that we start to see in in um, the Return of the King film that I think really becomes very important um, for again why I get kind of cranky about this film is that like the film puts us aside from Frodo and Sam. Um, it wants us to be a fourth or occasionally third member of the party who has an opinion and who has thoughts on how this thing is going. Um, that is distinct to Frodo and it's distinct to Sam and is not um, barred by what knowledge they are able to get to give us. And that is something that is built up in that last bit of the two towers and then becomes vitally important when we get to book six um, at the second half of Return of the King, but is not something that's ever really fully weaved into um, the Return of the King or Sam and Frodo story through either the two towers or Return of the King, because there's never anything that is not purely objective ever put on the screen. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you'll get early access to episodes and other special bonus content. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting, which is where I will be on Twitter, um, where I will be throwing lots of rings at all of the hobbits in the Shire to see if they'll all beat each other to death. It's like a game of Sonic. <laughs> Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.